I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. What's up, Rebels? Welcome to Rebel Radio, your weekly show about low expectations. When I say low expectations, I'm not talking about our guests. Our guests are amazing. I'm talking about me. Just don't expect too much and you might be happy. So check it out. Rebel Radio is now available on dashradio.com on the hot button channel. You can also subscribe on iTunes, on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash rebel underscore radio. My guest today is Oliver Wang. He's a DJ, college professor, journalist, blogger, man of many words. And he's got a new book called Legions of Boom, Filipino Mobile DJ Crews in the Bay Area. And uh, it's fascinating if you are into the scratch DJ scene at all. This is where it all started, going back into the 80s when uh, a lot of these guys were just kids coming up and, and finding their way as DJ Cruz. Turns out Oliver and I met back in 1995. I was a judge at the DMC GJ Championships, and he was sitting in the same room. Um, and we, we talk about some interesting stories from the book about how some of those guys got started. And uh, we also explore why the business side of music is not always bad. It tends to get a bad rap whenever we're talking about it. But I guess the reason we, we all know about hip hop is because somebody turned it into a business. So Oliver is going to tell us about that. Before we do, though, let's get into the EDM.com track of the week. This week's track is from Gallant. The track's called Weight in Gold. And uh, I think you're going to like it. It's a sexy R&B number. So let's check it out now. Yeah. 
Rose Gallant with Weight in Gold. You can find that on EDM.com on the Lavish channel. If you liked it, check out the Lavish channel. There's, there's all kind of music on there that you will probably like as well. So now let's get into my interview with Oliver Wang. College professor. Yes. Uh, music journalist. <laughs> yes. Crate digger. Yes. Author, DJ, podcaster. Blogger, yeah. Uh, I have a short attention span. I think is the gist of it. Yeah, Renaissance man. I like to say. I, I was, you know, as I was saying earlier to, to someone, you know, it's we're all we all are slash something, multiple yeah. slashes. Yeah, yeah. We are the slash generation. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, welcome. Thank you. Thank Thanks you for, for having me. To do this. It's good to see you. Uh, so Oliver is uh, the author of Legions of Boom. Chronicle American DJs, mobile DJ crews of the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, this is. So uh, I want to talk about so I want to talk about this book. This yeah. is, this book is fascinating. I'm glad you like it. I um, yeah I read it. Or at least you think it's fascinating. <laughs> I read it last week, and I I, I got to say, I mean, I I love uh, DJs, and I'm from the Bay Area, and I didn't expect to like this as much as I did. Um, and so you know, I want to I want to dig into to some stuff from the book. Yeah, please. But. Why, why'd you write it? I mean, there's the, the easy answer would be, I am a, you know, as you mentioned before, my day job is as a college professor and as part of my obligations, the profession, I have to occasionally turn out, you know, mm -hmm. publications. Sure. And so this fulfills part of that. But I think the more personal explanation is, you know, I, I got turned on to this story partially because in the uh, mid 1990s, uh, before I, I even started uh, graduate school, I was uh, a, a music writer, and I was writing about uh, specifically hip hop a lot, uh, and uh, you know, including for Herb Magazine, which is how me and Josh first got to know each other way back when. And when I began talking to the turntablists who were in the Bay Area at the time, and so these are people who you know, world famous DJs like Hubert, Shortcut, Mixmaster Mike, Apollo, etc. The one th common, uh, you know, link between all of their various origin stories, uh, besides the fact that they're all Filipino American and from the Bay Area, which is notable enough, is they all got started uh, in different mobile crews. And I'd already known a little bit about the scratch scene, but I had never heard anything about the mobile DJ scene. And the more that I dug into it, the more I realized here was this entire massive scene that you know extended the duration of the 1980s. Um, that involved hundreds of crews, thousands of young people across the Bay Area, and no one had really reported or written anything about it outside of maybe, I think Davey D was the only person I could find at the time. Um, and as both a journalist and as a scholar, by the time I, was, I started thinking about pursuing this as a, you know, a book-length project, it would have been in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, it just seemed like it was a good story to, to chase after. And so mm -hmm. both as a dissertation, which is what it, this book originally began as, but really just as a way of, of telling a history that I think very few people outside of the scene had any awareness of. Um, and I think that was the main thing that compelled me toward it is this idea that a generation of high school teenagers created a party scene that they dominated and they ran for 10 plus years um, that and you know, and I don't want to suggest that them giving birth to the turntablist scene is their most important legacy because I think it kind of reduces the accomplishments of what the scene did in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But that's certainly also a linkage of how we understand the present day world of DJing, how it links back to sort of what was happening in the Bay Area of the 1980s. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, that's one thing that stood out to me is that for as as rich uh, stories there were in the book. It probably wouldn't have happened if it were not for Cubert and Apollo. 
which like part the, in terms the, of the like this probably wouldn't be a book that has the kind of uh cultural relevance yeah i mean i think to the extent that anyone is aware of there being sort of that, be, that being filipino and being a dj is a thing yeah certainly <laughs> it links back to the success that people like q and mike and apollo and short and babu and i mean different Filipino DJs from across not just the U.S. and California, but really the world at this point, a lot of it links back to sort of Q, you know, winning the DMC back in, I got what was it, 1990 or 91 at this point, and sort of putting the, the Bay Area and putting Filipino DJs on the map and he him becoming this massive inspiration to future generations. So I, I think certainly to the extent that people are interested in that wider story, it links back to him. But as I try to point out in the book, even he had gotten his start and he was inspired by a previous generation of Filipino-American DJs, you know, folks in Spintronics, folks in Ultimate Creations. I mean, all these crews that people outside of the Bay have never heard of. But for a young Qbert attending Balboa High School in the early 1980s, like those were the gods, you know, from his childhood in, in essence. Explain for us why, why there are so many Filipino DJs. <laughs> you have to read the book. No, um, I mean partly. God, where to, where to begin with that? I think part of it is so in the Bay Area, right? You have this critical mass of Filipino American family settlements that begins in the 1970s and throughout the, throughout the 1980s. And so in cities like Daly City, it's, it's the best known, but also places in San Jose, places in Union City, Fremont, up in Vallejo. Um, you have, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of Filipino-American families settling um, in these suburban places during the course of the 1970s. So their children come of age by the 1980s. Uh, and these are, you know, schools and neighborhoods in which they are, if not the, you know, literal demographic dominant group, they're sizable, right? And uh, in the late 1970s, partly because of the explosion of interest in DJing, thanks to things like the you know interest in disco. Mm -hmm. um, you have these young teenagers that are in high school, they're sneaking up into San Francisco on weekends, sneaking into um, nightclubs up, up there like Studio West, and they're watching these discotheque DJs uh, do their thing with what back then was called nonstop disco mixing, which we, these days we just take for granted as that's just how DJs DJ. It's, every segue is seamless, right? But that was an innovation, that was something that that, that had to be invented and, and popularized throughout the course of the 70s. And so by the time these, these kids come into contact with it in the late 80s, it really blows their mind because it really puts the DJ into this position of power where they control the flow and the energy of the crowd throughout the course of the evening. And so what, what, they, what they take inspiration from is that experience in the nightclub. And their innovation lies in how can we translate that experience back to our suburban spaces. So in other words, how do we take what we see, the light show, the sound of Studio West, the mixing styles, how do we bring that back to, let's say, a Daily City or a Union City? 
and how do we duplicate it in someone's garage or in a school gymnasium or in a church hall? And that's how the mobile scene really takes off initially is these kids wanting to create the same kind of nightclub experience, but back in their own neighborhoods using the whatever means possible they can figure out. And a lot of this is, you know, this is way before DJ specialty stores and, mm-hmm. and websites exist, obviously. So they're just DIYing everything. You know, they're learning how to make their own lighting stands and they're stealing uh, sirens, you know, lighting sirens off of, uh, you know, ambulances as a way to have a light show. Um, they're creating their own fog machines. All of the way, all as a way of showing them and their friends in high school how to have a good time, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's part of the story. The other part of it, how does the scene grow to the size it becomes? This goes back to those Filipino American families, most of whom, and the ones who are whose kids become these DJs, they're middle class. That means they have the kind of you know excess income to be able to loan out to their kids to be able to buy the equipment to buy records. Um, and more importantly, these are, you know, this is an immigrant community in which extended family networks are really important, in which community groups and church groups and student groups in colleges and high schools are really important to connect, to keep Filipino Americans connected to one another. So if you are a young crew and you need to get gigs because that's how you make your money, you plug into that existing network and mm-hmm. you do your cousin's cousin's, you know, birthday party or you do your aunt's wedding or you do, you know, your local high school's Filipino club school dance. Um, and it's the strength of that network which allows the scene to blossom because it's able to circulate gigs to all of these new crews that start popping out, up out of the woodwork throughout the course of the 80s. Yeah, one of the things you talk about in the book that I found interesting, uh, well, you know, I think about it a lot, but I don't, I'm not as smart as you. So I, um, I'm but not that smart, but okay. <laughs> well, you know, but you, 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 um, well, I, I want to talk about that separately because I think yeah. there's something really interesting to being an academic into hip hop. I know you're not just into hip hop, but you, you sort of come up out of that tradition. And, um, you know, and, and Jeff Chang, right? Is, Huge influence on me. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. And on me as well. Yeah. He, Jeff, uh, I think I worked for Jeff for about three days at Herb in the first. <laughs> so my first day at Herb as an associate editor after I graduated uh was jason bentley's last day okay i didn't even realize bentley was at her okay so see yeah Yeah, he was there he was some kind of editor position he was just literally just leaving maybe to go to kcrw full-time or Mm -hmm. i'm not sure Mm. and then or kwango i i lost some of the history there but uh and then jeff was there and he was leaving and i actually filled his role so he trained me for like a week before I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't realize that. Because Jeff is basically who brought me into Herb at the time to work with, oh God, was it T-Love? It was T-Love, I think, was, was editing the hip-hop single section. This, was, this would have been around 94, 95. Yeah. And so Jeff basically gave my contact to T-Love, and that's how I started at Herb. And I eventually took over T-Love's position in, when I was an editor um, there for however many years and, and t- through the, the early, mid-2000s. Uh, so... Yeah. Well, all right, let's shift gears and talk about that because that seems more interesting. But, (laughs) you know, I wonder, so I have this feeling that um, journalism and and music journalism is important to culture. Okay. Right? That there's an important... Hopefully, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of crap journalism, just like there's a lot of crap music. Sure, sure. But that, you know, a strong critical voice 
to help guide a scene. You know, you talk a lot about this sort of scene-based movement mm -hmm. uh, in the book, right? That, that that's an important voice. And, you know, when we guys of a certain age sort of remember when the magazine of, of record told you to buy this thing and not that and, yeah. you know, check for this DJ and not that. And, yeah. Right. And, and I feel like that's missing today. And I, and I feel like, uh, that, that consumers, fans are sort of worse off for not having that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I hear where you're coming from. And I think for me, whenever this question arises, I'm always, a little bit hesitant to pass judgment only because even as sort of this these different scenes have changed like I'm older too and sort of my investment in trying to stay on top of everything 24/7 is very different now that I'm in my you know early 40s versus when I was in my early 20s right mm -hmm. and so even though I do think I mean the, the agreement that I have with you here is that there is less of a filter between what music gets made and how listeners receive it, right? And it used to be that a magazine like an herb or like a source or whatever, they were that intermediary to help filter through, well, here's all the music that's out here, but here's what you really should be listening to, right? Yeah. It was, I mean, I fucking hate this term. I hope it's okay that I'm swearing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, we, the word curation gets way overused and abused these <laughs> right. days. But Absolutely. if I'm, I'm just gonna invoke and just to say that part of what journalism and criticism can function as is sort of this curatorial impulse, which is, we're going to take the you know a thousand different things that you could be listening to and recommend ten out of that, and I do think that what's shifted is that it's not necessarily that that curation elements disappeared. It's rather there's like a, a ten thousand curators now, and they right. all have their own listicles of things that sure. you should be listening to. Um, I don't know whether the whether the consumer whether the listener is worse off for it. It's sort of hard to say because I think the other difference now is that if I wanted to know what the new whatever album sounded like back in the day, I sort of needed a magazine to first listen to it for me because they would get the advance and they had right. had a chance mm -hmm. to listen yeah. to it. These days, I can just go to Spotify. I can go to YouTube. Yeah. So I don't really need the intermediary to have access because that access has been already advanced to me mm -hmm. uh, you know, without requiring sort of someone in between to, to sit there. Um, so then I can make the judgment for myself. So if, you know, whoever the new, you know, if we're talking, let's say, the, some new Flying Lotus album, chances are that's going to be streaming in full a week before it's quote-unquote release date because release dates are kind of meaningless these days anyways. And I don't know if the listener is worse off for having that direct access to it without requiring someone like me as the critic to basically sit between the two of us and say, well, yeah, you should listen to it. Um, I mean, I still love writing criticism. I still feel like there's a function to it, which is, that filtering aspect. But again, I don't know if as a whole, a listener is worse off because we don't have that same kind of power that we had, let's say 20 years ago. Yeah. I just, I mean, I tend to believe that too much choice is not good. That's okay. A, that some choice is good. Yeah. But too much can be sort of debilitating and that, um, you know, music like many things is, is subjective. So what's good to me may not be good to you. And so, I, you know, I think, I don't know that we as a as a general that people in general are that good at sort of knowing what they like. Mm. Um and so the radio has its system for getting people to decide what they like, which is play it over and over and over until you like it. Um you know, and I think part of the music industry's system used to be 
that we go through this layer of media, right? So part of, part of what you're talking about is is we got the records early <coughs> as journalists because someone wanted us to right. get them early, right? Right, and and so I think the fact that everything just shows up on Spotify at once mm. sort of speaks to the diminished role of the critic in that because there's no labels saying no. I need the critics to hear it first and talk about it. And right. Well, what about the blogs? Kind of I mean, like hype them, and those guys are putting what's trending. And yeah. So like, I mean, I source so, my music that way. So what so they lack is is a critical voice, right? So. But um, this is. I mean, this is. You're saying. It lacks a critical voice, but the mass people are saying that they like that song, so it rises to the top. So mm -hmm. it's almost like you can't argue that then because people like it. So what happens is that when, when a new superstar artist, when Katy Perry makes a new single, there are millions of people who've already decided they like that before they even heard it because they're Katy Perry fans and they want to hear it. And so it's going to be number one on hype every single time. If, right? they, if they cover Katy Perry. Okay, but, so, or whatever. Or, you know, when Diplo makes a track, it's going to be number one on Hypem always because it's a Diplo track. Now, you know, when The Source got the uh, the Public Enemy record, and, uh, you know, they, I remember The Source review, they called it, instead of Fear of a Black Planet, they called it Fear of a Whack Album. Now, there's a lot of us who might disagree, you know, w but whatever they caused a, an important dialogue within the community mm -hmm. about this record because they they stepped up and said it's not what we expected right. right and so the millions of kids who are who are clicking thumbs up or thumbs down or or whatever on on hypem or or any of these platforms are not they're just not giving it that critical thought which i'm not saying is all bad but I am saying that it's partly bad. I think, you know, let's see, a few thoughts here. One is that on the one hand, I, I get where you're coming from. And I think part of me certainly agrees with the fact that we're sort of been thrust into this kind of brave new world. We're all trying to make sense of it. At least the old fogies like me, you know, are still trying to make sense of it. And is there something lost? Yeah, probably, right? Um, Probably something gained too. I don't mean to kind mm -hmm. of equivocate about it, but I, I, I'm always I'm always trying to be self aware of of how in and out of touch I am within this. Mm -hmm. I do think it's interesting, and I think partly my other thought here is as someone who, as a scholar, I'm interested in understanding phenomena regardless of my own personal feelings about it, and also raising someone. You know, I have my daughter's now ten years old, and the the, the most powerful source in which she's learned about songs that she now loves and has learned to memorize was watching pitch pitch perfect oh yeah uh, you know yeah. not and not on, not in the theaters it was we i think we thought maybe you'd like this and we watched it on maybe it was on cable or something um but she has memorized basically every song off of that that first soundtrack or that was in the movie so she knows how to do like the opening dr dre rhymes <laughs> to um to know is it no diggity right to no diggity it's going down, fade to black street. The homies got at me, collab creations bump like agony, no doubt. I put it down, never slouch. As long as my credit can vouch, a dog couldn't catch me. Say Tell me who could stop with Dre making moves, attracting honeys like a magnet, giving them orgasms with my mellow accent. Still moving this flavor with the homies Black Street and Teddy, the original rough shakers. Shutting down, good Lord. Baby got them open all over town. 
Strictly bitch, you don't play around. Cover much ground. Got game by the I this it kind of blows my mind that her route into that is by watching the riff off in Pitch Perfect. So regardless of what I th- whether or not I, I think it would be more ideal for her to have heard it that way versus another way, for me, again, this is just me as a as a scholar and as an observer, I just find that really interesting. I don't know what to really make of it, mm-hmm. but I think it's worth noting that these are increasingly the ways in which people learn about things. It's through yeah. movie soundtracks. It's it's through that, you know, the, the, the last song that, with, which television shows feel like they have to play during a montage of emotional moments with right. the key characters. Mm-hmm. Sure. But... I mean, I hate to admit it, I've learned about new songs because of that. I've learned about new songs watching commercials. Mm -hmm. That's not the only way, but it is an increased way in which we're getting exposed to music. And again, regardless of my own personal take on it, I think it's sort of just an interesting way in which the distribution of how music flows to us has been changed and transformed over the years in, in a very quick amount of time. I mean, really, 20 years ago may sound like a long time ago, but it, to me, it doesn't feel that long ago at yeah, all. Um, and really, we're really, we're really talking about stuff that I think has flipped in really just 10 years. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, again, Josh, it, it's I, I totally hear what you're saying. Um, do I think there's been something lost in that transformation? Sure. Yeah. But I also feel like I don't want to be the one to judge how today's young people engage with music in a way where when I was young, their age, I didn't want to be judged about how I was learning about stuff either. Of course. You know, yeah. um, like one, one should never romanticize, I think as you're pointing out, like list finding stuff through the radio because radio has always been corrupted as a mm-hmm. medium to begin with. Right. So um, again, it, I don't want to be a moral relativist about it either. Um, I guess the gist of what I'm trying to say is I don't know what to do with all this. Well, what do you see as different? So you talk in the book about this concept of music being connected to identity, mm. and I know I know a lot of that is 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 racial and and cultural, but but some of that you could also say is generational, right? And so I wonder, yeah, sure, how you you know when you see your your students or your daughter, like how do you think music plays into their identity differs from how it was for our generation? I don't think it's very much different at all. I think that the way in which, I mean, the power of music, and it's something I, th- I think I mentioned in the book, is that you know, it is both something that is both incredibly intimately personal, right? The, you know, the, the songs that we think are our songs, we hold to us mm-hmm. as dear as anything else in our lives. But it also, and this is what makes music so powerful, it's both intimate yet incredibly social because it's how we define ourselves relative to one another. I identify with you because I like the same artists or the same songs that you do. I like the same genres as you do that creates a community around itself i don't think music music's power to do that has changed much at all i think you know for my the for my students for example they're really into edm Mm -hmm. now that's not a music that i personally identify with very much uh maybe i just haven't given it a fair shake i like sick (laughs) drops as much as the next guy as a dj i guess but i recognize that for them attending something like the electric daisy festival which they do that is part of their formation of how they have a sense of identity and of group identity in the same way that me going to hip hop in the park in Oakland back in the mid nineties, that was sort of my gesture of sort of identifying who I saw as my community. I don't think music's ever lost that, that, that power. I think if there's a difference, it's that, you know, it used to, well, you know, we've gone from having, well, I don't know, a handful of major genres, right? You're a rock guy, you're a hip hop person, you are a jazz person, whatever. Um, and now you have all these atomized micro genres where you can have subdivisions within subdivisions and that becomes how you identify. So instead of having, you know, four or five major food groups, we now have, you know, a thousand small ones. Right. And so 
the kind of community and group identity building ha- happens at a smaller scale, perhaps, as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. I saw one recently that was called French Israeli Pop. I was like, See? what the heck is that? But I love the song. And I was going to call it Electro Pop. Sure. <laughs> right. There are, there are a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, it's interesting because I think, you know, on some level there's always been sort of a resistance to these labels. Um, you know, the grunge guys started to hate the term grunge or right. alternative and, you know. Sure. Uh, just like kind of what's happening in the EDM space right now. Right, right. Uh, at the same time, the marketing machine sort of needs. Genres. These, right. Yeah. Right. Because otherwise they don't know how to. They want be- yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, genres have always existed primarily as a marketing tool rather than as a kind of an artistic kind of, you know, yeah. uh, as being, yeah, it, it, it's, it has more utility as a marketing tool than it indicates any kind of actual kind of artistic set of conventions. Sure. Perhaps. Absolutely. Um, so talk about why the DJ is so important. Oh God! You know, all these small questions. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, talk about why it's so important to, to, to what? You. Like life to, no, to to you? To me, I mean, there's a, a quote that I I always like citing um, in discussing the book, and this comes from Sarah Thornton, who is uh, a club culture scholar, and she writes about the DJ as the orchestrator of the of the or of a communal experience. And I mean, I think to me, right, as someone who not just writes about DJs but is a DJ. You know, I just did a wedding in Little Rock uh, the other week, and so I, you know, I can I experience this in a visceral way. Is that you are there to basically create this communal experience on the dance floor through your song selection, through your mixing styles, and that based on those decisions, you either lift up the moods of the crowd, you bring them down, or you make them hate you, or you make them love you, depending on you know something as simple as how do I follow song A with song B, mm-hmm. and I think that allure and that power is what draws people to DJing is the sense that you can have this incredible effect on a crowd of people through very little than just your taste in some ways mm-hmm. right and and it's certainly a level of skill along with that uh, as well um, but I think that in the ways in which people experience music on that visceral physical sonic level DJs are this incredibly important you know mediator between you know, again, to go back to the point we were saying before, there's you know a billion songs you could choose from. The DJ is the one who sort of p- puts together that playlist mm-hmm. that he thinks or she thinks will lead a crowd or an audience through an emotional experience, you know, or a cerebral experience as a pro- as part of that process. Yeah. Um, you know, which, and I'm just thinking of this sort of off the top. As a writer, it's sort of the same thing. You're taking a series of ideas and you're stringing them together in a way that you think will make it compelling to get people to think a way that you want them to think or feel the way that you want them to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think DJing is like a lot of things in which people are organizing a vast set of things into something that is, again, I hate this term, but I'm going to use it again, into sort of a curated experience. And that experience is designed to elicit some kind of response from from an audience. In studying uh, DJ culture... Uh, did you find any common characteristics amongst like the most successful DJs? Hmm. 
Um, I don't know about common characteristics. I mean, I'm trying to think of the things that this particular community valued. And, and so I'm talking specifically about, you know, Filipino-American mobile mm-hmm. disc jockeys in the 80s. You know, a lot of it came down to not just about mixing skill, but also just presentation. Uh, one of the crews that, that that almost universally was seen as the best crew was this crew out of San Francisco called Ultimate Creations. And they partially forged a mystique around themselves because they had a really clean setup like they didn't let wires show you know mm. everything they had a, a they had a they they borrowed their color scheme from the raiders so everything was silver and black so they made sure all of their equipment their cases reflected that and so they were just really well put together so that every time they performed I mean, basically, they were they had great brand management yeah. before mm-hmm. that term ever existed. Right. And I think that was sort of an interesting thing for me to realize that it wasn't just because they had the best DJs, and that was certainly they had a great DJ and this guy, Genie G, but it was also just the fact that they put themselves out there in the way that other crews looked at them in awe and like, oh, I didn't realize that was possible yeah, yeah. to be that professional, to sort of put yourself across like that. Um, so again, I don't know how applicable that is to sort of other examples, but to me, that's sort of an, an, a striking example of what what it was that that they valued at that point mm-hmm. was. It wasn't just again, it wasn't just about the music; it was also about how did you present yourself as a crew. Right. Yeah, yeah, I see that. I mean, Dead Mouse does that right with his helmet, and right. I'm sure there's you know DJ Newmark and his whole toy setup. Right, there's something to be to having an identity that people right. can instantly see on a visual level beyond just the sonic aspect and I'd be able to identify that okay we know what we're getting and there's there's something comforting in that to a certain extent um, you know I think partly what you see in this scene too is also um, you know beyond the basics of, of song selection it's always kind of pushing the boundaries of, of style too and so the things that they, they kind of uh, latched onto was quick mixing for example so the idea that you could whittle through you know, stacks of records on both sides of the turntables and you were switching up songs every, I don't know, two, three, four bars, but always keeping it on tempo. That mm-hmm. was sort of a demonstration of skill mm. that, um, you know, I don't think it's, well, in the Serato age, that's not difficult to do. From a technical right. point of view, that's actually really easy to do. Yeah. But back when you were working with analog media, that was actually something that it was a skill set that, that people respected. Uh, and then that gave way to scratching. When scratching arises in the in the late 1980s, that becomes a new level of how to demonstrate sort of your acumen on the turntables. And so the scene itself sees kind of these changing standards, basically, for what they respect from one another, mm. uh, what becomes seen as, as being the mark of being a good DJ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as I think about it, I find it so interesting that, um, you know, DJs, we... we Traditionally associated DJ with hip hop, but certainly electronic music, you know, exists through DJs and, you know, and there's a soul and funk tradition. And even within what you're talking about, right? Like these, these kids were not always playing hip hop. They were playing freestyle and, you know, whatever was the music that would move the crowd. Right. Right. And, and then there's, uh, the party DJs and the performance DJs and the competition DJs and, you know, now I think there's a sort of debate, uh, certainly in, in the dance music world, but even in hip hop to some extent of sort of what constitutes a real DJ. Um, you know, if you're using Ableton. too much technology. Right. right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sure. If, you know, there are there are some guys uh, we've talked about on this show who uh, whose equipment isn't actually plugged in when they're on stage. <laughs> and, you know, it's just all for show. It's all right. 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 And, you know, I don't want to debate the real not real thing yeah because there's no answer to that right um 
It's as real as the audience is willing to make yeah. it real. But that's right? what I was going to say is like what what's consistent through all of that is that the crowd loves it. And, you know, every every successful DJ, obviously, by definition, has found a way to make whatever he does, whether it's dancing while there's music right. playing, work for the people that are watching him do it. And I, th I, I believe there's something to that, that collective experience that we want to have, that we want someone to lead us through. Right. I mean, the thing that I, I think I make this analogy in the book is that a DJ may be in power, but only to the extent that the audience gives them that power. So right. the, what, the, what the audience and the crowd on the dance floor is doing is basically saying, I'm going to let you take me through this journey. But if at the point which I don't like it, I'm going to leave the dance floor and I'm going to ruin your night. And yeah. so as much as we think of the DJ as being in control, again, that control is it's it's given to them. It's they're allowed mm -hmm. to sort of right. pilot the ship so long as the, the crowd is with them. Yeah. And I think I mean, I think this raises an interesting philosophical point, which is can you be a good DJ if audiences don't like you? And you could be the most highly technically skilled DJ on the planet. But if no one wants to listen to you or dance to what you're playing, I think it raises an interesting question as to what well, does, does that mean you're very good at all? Um, and, you know, and this is not to create like a false binary between like it's all about crowd pleasing versus it's all about your skills. But at the end of the day, DJs are not solitary. Their craft is completely dependent on an audience being receptive to it in a way that I think is different than like other parts of art. You could be, you know, you could be an, an, a painter who, uh, Maybe a lot of people don't get your art. That doesn't mean that you're not really a good artist necessarily. But with a DJ, that symbiotic relationship to the audience, you can't really remove that. A DJ by themselves is, I mean, yeah, they're still DJing, but it's the audience that sort of gives their identity as a DJ any kind of real meaning to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So talking about success, you, you talk a little bit about this idea of psychic capital. Yeah. Can you explain that for Yeah, us? I mean, you know, these guys... As and and I keep saying guys partly as shorthand, but it's also because it was predominantly uh, you know a male scene as yeah. as the DJ scene tends to be, and there are reasons for that which we can get into. But for for the, the the members of the mobile scene, they certainly were able to make some actual money off of this, but most of that money got instantly reinvested into buying new records or upgrading equipment. Like you, no one got interested in, in mobile DJing because they thought they were going to you know pay their bills off of it. It was really the the the, the, the actual income was pretty secondary. The psychic income is just another way of saying that partly what you get out of it is this, you know, social status. It's mm -hmm. fame, right? Mm -hmm. It's popularity. Right. Um, you know, the, the the people, and again, these are high school students, right? So they're comparing being a, a star DJ to being like the star quarterback. And so we, we, you know, we understand thanks, you know, to a thousand like high school movies, like what are the, what is the hierarchy of fame within a high school social environment? And for these um, again, mostly young men, DJing was a way for them to kind of rise up that hierarchy in a way that wasn't dependent on, you know, being class president or right. being the quarterback, but they could be sort of like the hot DJ on campus. And this right. was a way for them to have, to be able to build a reputation among themselves, among their friends. Um, if there were men among girls, that was a big part of it too. So that psychic income that I'm talking about is just another way of saying it's part of, and, and this is a quote from Corman Roke, who was one of the members of, of Spintronics at a Daily City. For him, psychic income just meant that he didn't have to get paid in physical dollars. He was getting paid in like in rep. He was getting mm -hmm. paid in props, right. to use a hip hop term, if you will. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I mean, you know, that feels right. Um, you know, if you open any magazine newspaper website about 
the music business today. Like the business has sort of dominated the conversation and it's all about how much artists can make or right, right. can't make, right? And uh, that's not to say people should just, you know, not worry about the finances and make music for for the props, yeah. but but it does seem like some of that's gotten lost in the in the discourse about music today. What the the I, the psychic income quality of yeah. it? I mean, I think the thing you got to keep in mind: none of these none of these DJs that I write about were thinking that they were going to become professional DJs. Sure. They were doing it as something that it would seem like it was fun, and they took it very seriously. But it wasn't right. like their ambition was, yeah, I want to grow up to be a, you know a professional DJ. And of course, you know, a, a handful of them that is what they ended up doing. But the vast majority of for for the vast majority of them, it was just something to do on the side because they were, could be with their friends, and mm-hmm. you know, it was it was fun. Um, and I think that to the extent that psychic income has power, it's, you know, when you try to translate, okay, so how, how do I turn that psychic income and how do I make it into actual income? Therein sort of lies a trick to a lot of things that begin as hobbies that we might want to pr- pursue as professions or careers yeah. that may not be as easy to, to make that transition. Um, and, uh, you know, I do think that there there is a fascination that people in the media have with how much DJs get paid. And I think partially it's based around this devaluation of the idea that DJs should get paid much of anything. Like right. people can't believe that Tiesto yeah. gets paid whatever the fuck he gets paid. But we don't have that same conversation about Beyonce right. or about right. you know or about a C, the CEO of like of of a company because sure. we presume well yeah they should be highly compensated because that fits into our narrow worldview of, of how people get paid. But like the idea that a DJ should be making you know ten million dollars a year like that doesn't make sense to me. Well. Yeah, but if you look if, if you look at the bare basics, like how much they much money do they make for other people? Right. Yeah, then it's like yeah, that that income actually does make sense. Mm-hmm. I think people just see DJing as being frivolous and therefore not worthy of compensation, mm-hmm. right. um, and that you know that's that's ignorance. Right. You know exactly. I was just going to say, are the people that are saying that are people who have never been to a show and seen a DJ do what he does? Right. Or or who just don't understand like the the, the amount of money that's being generated right, by right. people going to clubs and in Vegas or, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, DJing. And I don't know if this is partly what Josh is getting at too. I mean, I do, there's any number of miscontents that, that are malcontents that come up or discontents, sorry, discontents <laughs> that come up in the idea of DJing as big business, right? There's a lot of just debate. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things that it makes people uncomfortable thinking and talking about that. But I think this, this to go back to my previous point, this fixation we have and how much do DJs get paid? Again, a lot of that comes out of the fact that a lot, but there's a certain segment of people just assume that DJs shouldn't get paid much of anything because all you're doing is just playing records, man. I could do that. Well, if you could do what sure. a lot of these people are doing it, why aren't you out there doing it? Right. And I'm kind of feeling like, yeah, there's probably a little bit more to it than just playing records, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um, you know, I, I have some amount of anxiety about uh, any cultural endeavor as big business. Sure. Because, you know, you talk about, you know, this, uh, you know, the mobile scene becoming, you know, sort of sort of happening in this, in this vacuum, right, where it's allowed to grow sort because of out. There, yeah, because there's not that much money, in, you know. Right, and yeah. there's not that much scrutiny. Right. That, right. And I think, you know, you referenced some other, uh, you know, the the British punk scene and the, you know, the rave scene and, uh, you know, certainly the New York hip hop scene. Like these things happen kind of in quiet, small communities that become bigger communities that then, you know, turn into businesses. Right. And 
I have some feeling that that's necessary for for these kind of movements to develop and that you know as the internet unearths more of everything that's happening on the planet at any given time that that's a that's going to become a greater challenge for this sort of cultural evolution to happen because things don't have enough time to evolve on their own before they're sort of quote-unquote discovered is mm -hmm. that what you're suggesting yeah um and and part of it is the the um attachment there's there's a certain kind of person who wants to discover the next big thing right yeah I mean, that's that's a i think the core kind of contradiction sure i mean i think one of the, the one of the great transformations of how we think about popular culture especially over the 20th century let alone into the 21st is that you know it wasn't really that long ago probably our parents or grandparents generation in which pop culture was really just completely dismissed as fluff and as being unimportant and as being trash trash culture so it didn't you know it didn't live up to the kind of um, import that we put on classical music or on theater or literature all these things and what we've seen is that over the course of the last you know probably since rock and roll that that pop culture now exists sort of on somewhat of an equal playing field with everything else out there. On the one side, as someone who loves pop culture, it kind of feels like, well, we won finally in terms of people take this stuff seriously because it should be taken seriously. But on the flip side, I think what comes with that is this idea that partly what propelled pop culture up that chain of importance is this idea that anything can be monetized, right? And that what people are, when, when people are looking for the next big thing, what they're looking for is something that hasn't been monetized yet so mm -hmm. they can be an early investor on that and they can therefore get paid off of it. I mean, this is sort of how capitalism works, right? You find, you, you buy low and you sell high. And I think mm -hmm. pop culture has become a really attractive uh, realm for people to try to, you know, dig through and find stuff that they can invest in as a way of not necessarily helping the culture or whatever it is we're talking about succeed, the phenomena or community succeed, but rather how can I make a quick buck off of it? And that, that, that driving force is both what helps pop cultures, certain communities succeed, but it's also the very danger that lies in that success. So, you know, the reason why the mobile scene, I think, never mapped onto other people's consciousness was partially because they never made the transition, unlike hip-hop, unlike house music or techno music. They didn't make the transition from playing records to making records, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But if that mobile scene had been able to make that jump successfully, like, again, hip-hop is a great example because by 1979, hip-hop culture, what we think of hip-hop culture in New York City, was on the wane. You, you know, six months, 12 months later, that thing would have been dead. It would have just been a nice memory of a local party culture that no one else cared about. Yeah. But Rapper's Delight changed everything. Now, you could argue that was a great thing for hip-hop because it gave it a new life. It, it kind of opened the door for how we think of hip-hop today. But it also irrevocably changed hip-hop from being a very local, live performance. You experience it in the moment culture to something that can now be commodified mm -hmm. and would make people billions of dollars. Is that a net win for hip-hop? Is that a net loss for hip-hop? You know, I don't sure. know. I think one could argue both ways. And yeah. I think that, that that same contradiction confronts every piece of, of culture that we hold dear to ourselves. That tension is never far away because... Mm -hmm. Capitalism, it, you know, it, it eats itself, and the things that we love can be easily corrupted and perverted for the same reasons that we got to know it to begin with.
That's a really uplifting message. <laughs> I mean, I think, but <clears throat> no, no, you're right. Well, I think the trick is, and I think what keeps us engaged is we're always hoping that the thing that we love stays one step ahead of it, right? And that it always manages to be just outside of the, the, that grasp and the, and the jaws of capital. But to me, at the same time, again, I grew up in the West Coast, right? I wouldn't know about hip hop if not for the commodification of hip hop, and hip hop right. changed my life. Of course, so. Do I, am I resentful for that? I, it's kind of hard to be, but on the but I, I can still say that that transformation into a commodity also creates problems along the way, and I don't know how to resolve that as someone who studies pop culture and as a you know as someone who loves pop culture is, and is engaged in it. I'm always aware that that contradiction is always there because again the relationship between pop culture and capitalism you don't get pop culture without capitalism. Otherwise, we'd all be living through folk culture, and that's a very different experience. Right. Uh, okay, favorite DJ? Um, I mean, my first impulse is, well, what, what kind of DJ are we talking about? Um, Tell us about the... the I mean, the, the DJ who made me want to become a DJ, Benny B. Did you mm. know Benny up in the Bay? Yeah, not only do I know Benny from, from uh, ABB, but my grandmother lived off of uh, Adams. Yeah directly across the street from Benny's family. Okay. And so we played together at like four or five years That's old. That's crazy. Yeah. I was friends with his older brother because I'm a little wild. bit older than him. Okay. Okay. But uh, but he would be out there like, and, and me and his brother, Byron. Yeah. So yeah. Benny B, Ben Nickelberry, um, I mean, he's probably best known for running the, um, the independent uh, Barry hip hop label ABB Records. Um, but he also was and still is a, a record collector and a DJ and he used to do a show on KALX which is the um, college radio station for UC Berkeley which is how I first started DJing by being a ra- by working at the radio station and I just have this really distinct memory of Benny would bring down his own tables and he had one of those old wood paneled mixers I can't remember if it was a realistic mixer or maybe it was like the, the Jazzy Jeff special that um uh, who put out all those cheap mixers back in the days that wasn't realistic, but everyone like, had one. Like Tascam? No, no, man. Oh, like they had, the, they had, like, you know, they were in the back of the source. They Gemini? Were old, Gemini, right? Yeah. It was like a, the wood panel yeah. Gemini mixer. Remember those, Mark? And he would, he would bring those down to the radio, the, to the radio uh, studio and would be cutting up doubles on it. And he just looked like he was having so much fun that when I saw him do that, I just felt like, man. I want to do that too. And that's, I think I really, I still to this day credit him with being at least that initial inspiration about seeing some, seeing another DJing, you know, performing the craft and, and wanting to be, t- to do it as well. Nice. So, um, you know, whether he's my favorite DJ or not, he certainly was, you know, the, this gateway into why I wanted to become it. Um, you know, I think one of the best party rockers I know would be someone like a J rock of the beat junkies or short shortcut, uh, who I actually got to, you know, DJ. Uh, we had a mutual friends wedding in Shanghai that we both went out there to DJ. That was really fun. DJ nice. next to short and just seeing him do, you know, how he works it up close. Like he is so good. It, I mean, it's just seamless and it, he makes it seem effortless, even though I know there is a ton of training that goes into being him, be able to execute like that. Mm-hmm. But I love DJs who are able to work with multiple genres and still make it seem like, it all makes sense together. And I think for me, I did, I tend to get stuck in ruts where, you know, if, over the course of an evening, I'll do like a hip hop set and then I'll do a funk set. I'll do a Latin set. And I'm, I'm sort of more tedious, uh, uh, no, not tedious. I'm more timid about kind of 
uh, mixing it up and going from, let's say, a, you know, dance hall track to like, you know, a Latin track to whatever. And and sure does he just he'll he'll move every every song will be something different, but it all makes sense together. And yeah. I think I really admire sort of DJs who who have just a command of musical knowledge to know how these things will fit together. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are the ones who sort of immediately come to mind. What about a, a performance that stands out to you? I, I mean, I think this was 1994. It was the West Coast Regional DMC, DMC Championships that were held at Club DV8 in San Francisco. And I saw Shortcut do the Impeach the President juggle. Yeah. And I'd never seen a juggle done before. And that blew my fucking mind. Like, I mean, I could, I could figure out what it was he was exactly doing, but I didn't even realize that this is something that one could do, which is to reconstruct an entirely new drum beat from two different drum beats. Um, that just stays with me forever, just because it was just sort of opening my eyes to just a, a level of, of technical and stylistic possibilities that I just didn't know existed. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that certainly stuck with me. So I'm almost positive I was a judge at that. You probably were. Yeah. So it was uh, Crazy Legs. If it was, if I have the year right, uh, so I definitely judged when I was at Herb. Okay. I went up there and I judged okay. the DMC at DVA. Yeah. And I remember um, shortcut one. Yeah. He won that year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it was, I and don't know if you went, it was also the same weekend as the Roots' first performance in San Francisco. I didn't see that. Okay. Which is the other reason why I remember that weekend. Yeah, I because I saw them, that blew my mind. I went to see Shortcut at the DMC Championship, uh, or the regional championship, and that, that also completely floored me. No, I think that was the show because there was some discussion about Legs was like, well, Short's a rock steady DJ. I don't know if I should be voting for oh, him. Right, right, the, right. The officials are like, don't worry about it. Um, so anyway, I was there. Yeah. That's crazy. That's funny. Small, yeah. I mean, it's a small world. The West Coast, I, I, and that, I in that area, that especially in the Bay Area, like, man. You just felt like yeah. it was it was a fishbowl, but it was an amazing fishbowl, you know, yeah. and that everything just seemed to be centered there. Yeah. Um, you know, so that stands out. I'm trying to think of a more recent experience of that was of super memorable. And the thing is, I mean, even back then, and especially now, I just don't go out that that much. I think partly as a hip hop fan, you're so used to hip hop shows sucking because the sounds bad oh, because yeah. performers. And I think things have gotten much better. I think people have gotten better. Like I think I saw yeah. Kanye in concert. And I realized, oh, rappers have gotten so much better at like live well, Kanye shows. Kanye yeah, but likes Kanye to go is, by right, right. But which probably should be how they do it. Cause but as a '90s kid, right. it's like hip hop shows were not fun yeah. to go to. Like it just didn't sound very good, and yeah. so I just didn't get used to like going to shows a lot. So I'm trying to think of you know when's the most recent time I went out and was like, man, that's really good. Um, I mean, certainly you were, you mentioned Newmark earlier. You know, he did a show at um, Grand Performances in downtown LA, and he had yeah his whole his whole setup, his, his yeah, whole yeah. setup. I gotta and see it. I just yeah, I've always loved how Amazing. imaginative and creative Newmark and the sense of play. Like you know, DJing 
certainly there are a lot of DJs who take their craft very seriously, but that shouldn't get in the way of there being just a sense of like of play involved with mm-hmm. it. And I think Newmark, as much as any DJ, is just such an expert at at working that in a way that's mm-hmm. not it's not gimmicky. I mean, he's just finding ways of, of incorporating other sounds and styles into a set. Uh, and I appreciate the level of care and fun that goes into sort of his thinking with that. Um, and yeah, so that was last summer. That was probably one of the last times I went to go, I went to go see a DJ specifically to see them DJ. Yeah. Um, I know we're not allowed to ask you questions, but how come you Why? get to pick what DJ what DJs are good? Like back then, what was like? Oh, so how did that? We don't know anything about Josh. Apparently, we find out all these things about him in his past because he doesn't really talk about himself that much. But so I was an editor at Herb Magazine, which was a magazine covering DJ culture, and uh, and they asked. I, I was probably in San Francisco already, so it was easy for travel. But they asked uh, us to have someone come participate as a judge. Was that fun? Yeah, it was great. I mean, I, you know, first of all, I got to spend the day with Crazy Legs. <laughs> And uh, a couple other guys who I'm not forgetting who were, you know, inspirations to me. And, you know, and you know, a day awesome. spent listening to DJs and watching yeah. them, you know, do their craft. Yeah, but you're judging is, them. Is That's like day. totally crazy. That's awesome. I think Pam the Funkstress might have been on that. She was. Yeah, yeah. she was. And she, yeah, yeah. she did her mix. She, she took her bra. Right, right. Right, and, and as well as, her shirt. as cutting it up with her breast. That, yeah, was her, yeah, yeah. that was kind of one of the things that she did back That's then. That's right. But yeah, that's right. Yeah. Same. That was the same show. Yeah, Absolutely. that was fun. <laughs> so no, it's great. You know, you're judging them, but you're not. Look, they were all good. They all made it right, right, right. to a certain point. You know. But did you have like favoritism because you like love certain DJs over others? I was. I remember being conscious of that at the time. That that you know, I mean, Shortcut clearly to me hadn't. He was better. Mm. But I did wonder, like, do I think he's better because I already think Rocksteady's better and, you know, you know, I knew Apollo and, and, and we weren't friends, but I'd interviewed them for the magazine, right? So yeah. I had this preconceived, back to my earlier point about we don't necessarily know what's good, right? Right. We tell ourselves what's good. I, I mean, I think of that of that year because, you know, Short would go on to represent the West Coast Regional and he lost to Rock Raider in the, in the national championships. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was, I mean, there's always controversies around any kind of contest, but in particular, I think people, and rest in peace to Rock Raider, is they felt like Raider's set was much more body trick focused and, and, right. and Short had more creative kind of skills. And I think back to this key battle I write about in the book, which was probably 1989 or 1990 between a very a, a young Cubert before he sort of had kind of na- you know national fame and this guy um, Jazzy Jim, who was a DJ out of the South Bay. And it was a contest in which they were the finalists and Jazzy Jim was a really skilled quick, quick mixer and Cubert was coming with scratches. And the judges really didn't know what to do because mm-hmm. th- it was like comparing apples and oranges. Right. They were completely two different schools of thought really. Jazzy ended up winning the night, but as we know historically, you know, Cubert won the war over the long term in terms of scratching became much more dominant. But it's sort of like, what do you do with two completely different set of standards? You know, I'm not going to say that Rock Raider didn't deserve to win, but to me, knowing what Raider's routine was, and I, I eventually did see Raider's routine, and knowing what Short could do, to me, where, where I lean, I think Short was the better DJ because it wasn't just dependent on like these acrobatic tricks, which are nice, but what he was doing in terms of like transforming what you could do with a set of records to me, that was a bigger innovation. But again, 
obviously people disagreed at, at that particular DMC and, and Rada came away the champion. And I, I don't yeah. begrudge him for that. These standards are always going to be, these debate around standards are implicit to any kind of artistic practice. Mm-hmm. How's music uh, playing a role <clears throat> in your household? That's a great question. I mean, it, I, I mean, I think partly parenthood is like an amazing exercise in in solipsism and narcissism because you just assume that everything your kid does is somehow a reflection of you. Of course. When really it's them, them. It's just them being themselves, really, right? But I do love watching the ways in which my my daughter engages with music, and I think when certainly when um, she was younger one of the primary ways in which she listened to any music is whatever I played in the car. And so she actually would know yeah. the choruses to like a lot of kind of semi-obscure 60s soul songs just because I would play them all the That's time awesome. in the car. Yeah, and I, I love that, that aspect forever. of it. Now that she's getting older and now that she has access to YouTube, she's coming into more of her own musical awareness to some extent. Again, we were talking about Pitch Perfect before. I mean, that's sort of one example of it. Um, you know, it is funny because she came downstairs and she, she declared, you know, I want to memorize more raps. And I'm thinking, okay, nice. I can help you with that. Yeah. Maybe first start by not referring to them as raps, but <laughs> but so sure, funny. if you want to if you want to listen to stuff, let me, you know. And I think I put I put like three feet high and rising on her i her on her uh, her iPhone to listen to. I don't think she actually has listened to it, <laughs> and that's was part of my conceit. Like I want her to be exposed to the stuff that was important to me. Mm-hmm. Though she probably would be just as happy to listen to like Iggy Azalea's new album, which makes me want to kill myself. Oh but that's my fine. God, yeah. But that's fine totally. because again, it's not for me <laughs> to plan her course. She's going to come to music on her own in, in her own way. So um, I think I've, I've created a compromise will, where I will still play the stuff that I want to listen to. But if I know there are songs that she likes, I'll add that into sort of the car playlist so that she but can hear the like things that But you don't like rule it off the table like we cannot play Iggy Azalea whatsoever. Uh I mean, there are some things where I just don't want to listen to it. Yeah. But right. for for a minute, I didn't That's have a problem I with I never problem with fancy. Like I'm okay with fancy, <laughs> right. you know, at least the first <laughs> verse, and then I kind of get tired of listening to her about halfway through. Um, right. But for the most part, the things that my daughter wants to listen to, I don't have a big problem wanting to listen to them too. Um, again, I tr- I think for me, as I get older, I definitely want to be open-minded in terms of what I listen to and I don't want to be the same person I was when I was in my 20s where I was really closed off to a lot of things because I was being young and stupid Mm -hmm. Um, you know I I sort of have told this story to other people but there are certain albums where because I didn't really get the concept or I just was too fixated on wanting it to sound like the old stuff like I didn't like Lowen Theory when Lowen Theory first came out because I wanted it to sound more like people's instinctive travels which I love I mean, this is this is how ignorant I was. I'm like, why is it everything so bass heavy? Like, I didn't get the fact that low in theory referred to the bass. I thought uh-huh. they were talking about people's asses or whatever. Sure. And I just didn't get it. And of course, now I, you know, low in theory is probably, if not the number, my favorite tribe album. It's yeah. you know, close number two. But you know, I was just that kid who was like, if it doesn't sound the way that the first stuff sounds like, that, I don't give a, I don't care about it. Like, mm-hmm. I don't like Paul's boutique for the same reason. Mm-hmm. And of course, a lot of people didn't like Paul's boutique for the same reason. Right. Um, 
as I get older, I just want to remind myself, don't be like who I was. Be open to stuff. Right. Even stuff that you may not think you like, figure out what's interesting about it. And you don't have to love it, but at least be open to engaging with it. Right. And so, so what's something that, give us an example. Like something new, right? Yeah, something you, you. I'm just trying to think of what, like, what's the most recent, like, kind of big quote unquote pop album. I mean, I like Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. I mean, it's basically Mickey, but I mean, okay. that's not a that's bad true. thing, I guess. Um, I don't know if I actually really tried to sit with her album because she doesn't really need me to help her out in that respect. And, right. You know, I'll probably end up hearing her stuff regardless. Right. Um, so it's, I mean, on the, on the one hand, I don't go out of my way to be like a hardcore poptimist and only listen to everything that's out that's mm-hmm. big and popping. Right. But on the flip side, I don't tr- I don't like avoid that stuff just because it's big and popping either. Right. So I think I'm still trying to get over that. I yeah, do. I mean, I ch- I, I channel surf it. when right. I when I drive. If I'm not listening to NPR, like I will spend a few moments listening to kind of like the pop stations yeah, just on. to see what's what's kind of rifling through there mm-hmm. and seeing if there's stuff that I might be open to. What do you think of what the current state? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, again, this goes back to my my point about kind of like Odd Future and like Tyler to the Creator. A lot of, I mean, pop music is generally made for people who are in their late teens or early 20s. Like that's the key demographic. It's always been like that. Mm -hmm. You know, when Elvis was making music, when the Beatles were making music, they were making music for young people. I am not a young person anymore. Artists are not making music that is meant to like speak to me. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And if, if I don't feel connected to it, partly it's because that's not I'm not the intended audience. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, that that's out there that I'm not like hugely crazy about. It doesn't doesn't really speak to me. But that's because I'm in my 40s now and they're making music that's for like 17 year olds. Right, right. So are there any new guys that you check for? I mean, you, you talked about I mean, Kendrick, Kendrick right? certainly. Yeah. Um, you know, I liked, I really liked, um, speaking of Odd Future, you know, I really like Earl Sweatshirt's last out, like his, I like Doris a lot. His more recent album, not quite as into, um, but that's fine. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, the people that I'll try to make a point to kind of check for. And the, the problem is that that list is so big. I can't I have a hard time just kind of plucking right. a name out, out of the ether. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of. You know, Janet Jackson's supposed to come back with a new album this year. We haven't heard from her in a minute. Like, I'll be curious to see what her stuff sounds like. I'll always give Beyonce a shake because so many, so many of the people I know adore her on multiple levels, not just mm. musically, but socially and culturally and politically. So, yeah, I'll just give it a listen just to see what it's like. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to be someone who I'll always listen to a new Jay-Z project. I am steadily getting away from that because he's been so disappointing over the last few but Kanye I'll still check for because I think whether I love his stuff or not I think he's an interesting artist yeah yeah he pushes he he pushes Mm -hmm. right I don't don't like this I don't have to like what he pushes with but I'm I'm, I'm intrigued by it yeah no I I think that's that's cool Um, yeah but his style like he definitely pushes the boundary in style and it may not always work yeah I had the feeling when I when I listened to Yeezus that Yeezus is that what he goes by well, that, that was, was the album. Oh, album. right. Um, that like, it's not a great record right now, but in twenty years, he's gonna be really glad he made this record. Yeah, and I, I mean, mean, yeah, like, I, like, I, right. like as part of his catalog. Yeah, like that's right. it's an interesting evolution, and and he pushes the boundaries. But you know, I think, you know, Kanye's an artist. Jay Z's a businessman, right? I mean, they we, 
That's my pers- oh, sure. perspective. I mean, maybe, they're, they're well, both was, both, right? but they they, of they, 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 they strategize maybe a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Jesus was not a record that was designed to, like, king the market, sure, no. in a way that I think Blueprint blue, bleh, Blueprint yeah, yeah. 3 was much more designed, like, how yeah. can I hit these key marks? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are artists that, are, that I feel like I maybe should be listening more because when I hear random songs, I'm like, oh, wait, that's actually not bad. Like, Jesse J, who I know very little about, but I'm like, there's a few Jesse J songs up. I actually am not mad at this. I haven't really bothered to go to listen to her catalog, but maybe who knows? I'll, I'll she's surprise got a great myself. Voice. No, mm. yeah, she's got a really great voice. Um, I wish Josh would listen to some pop stuff. I'm like dying. When he went to the Bruno Mars concert, a couple maybe it's been a little over a year. I was so excited for him. I was like, "Welcome! <coughs> this is awesome! Yeah. You're gonna go yeah, see Bruno I, Mars. I He's so that. talented." Because you know, you're right. It's definitely- I like some Bruno stuff, but at this wedding I was at, I got a request to play Uptown Funk, which <laughs> I never really listened to outside of like five oh, seconds. So in the background. That, that song's hot garbage. It's terrible. And this is not nothing it. against Bruno, but that's I, I was listening it's to the song. worst. It's just so Why? fucking Why derivative. Does it work for me? It's like I don't know because you don't know the original songs that oh, they ripped off. I see. Maybe I don't know, but I just like my, it's like I can't believe. I, well, it's not that I couldn't believe people liked it. Like it made sense to me why the song's a hit. But to me, it's like, oh my god, this is just ripping off four yeah. different songs. Like, right. I, like this is such garbage to me. And again, it's yeah. nothing against Bruno because there's other Bruno Mars stuff I like. But like, no, Uptown Funk just offended me. It's been a while since I've been offended by a song, but that song fucking offended me. It offended me too. And but but to some extent, Bruno just offends me. Like, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, he's talented. I'm not. That's not to take that away from him. And I agree with you. There are some things I like, but I also think that uh, he's a knockoff artist. The, the first Which time I saw he's been him, accused of that, sure. Well, sure, yeah. right? Like, so there's there's in Uptown Funk that's obvious. Yeah. With uh, uh, Treasure, right? There's a whole story about um, Breakbot. Break thank you. There's French House guy, I right? Love right, Break right. Um, whose song he kind of ripped off. Uh, Baby, I'm yours. Is that it? I thought I had it all together, but I was led astray. just an evolution like it's and then but the first time I saw him before all that well my wife is a huge Bruno fan which is how I keep ending up I've seen him perform three times which is not (laughs) but you're gonna blame it on the wife okay (laughs) gotcha Uh, so but the first time you know I walked away thinking this guy is like a uh, he's a Michael Jackson impersonator who never heard off the wall or thriller or maybe he did. And like, he's just very good at like. No, I, I felt. No, I just meant like he. His, he. His Michael Jackson experience started it bad. Oh, I mm-hmm. see what you're saying. So it oh, missed the best okay. parts of Michael Jackson. Got it. Got it. And then, but he, but, but that's how I've just always felt about Bruno. Mm. Um, again, like you said earlier, he doesn't need me to like him. He's right, doing right. fine. I but, feel like we take away. I mean, he's a. He's a. But he does it for the show, you know, and uh, like if the show works, I mean. But you asked something else that I think is interesting, which is 
isn't all music derivative yeah. of other music. So yes, let's I put mean, that to, to some extent. Talk, talk, I mean, talk sure, us through that. to some extent, I think. But th there's a different. There's always this fine line. What what pushes music forward? I think are the kind of incremental changes that nudge it in a different direction, as opposed to sort of really. In the case of something like Uptown Funk, I feel like it's just replicating a bunch of things that we already know, as opposed to, I'm trying to think of an example of something that that kind of pushes things in a slightly different direction. Um, of course, nothing's coming to mind right now. But could he be bringing it back? Because for like for you guys, that was the, maybe the music you were listening to back then. Those were the that's type what, of... That's what covers are for. But for us, this is something new. I've well, never you, heard this stuff before. My parents didn't introduce it to me, so I have an appreciation of the time that you never heard. And he performs it amazing. Then, then would, how then is that not ripping it off? As if it was new, and you know, to me that would be I maybe just, not interesting, but it'd be less offensive. I just feel like it's it's not fair because he's like he's 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 bringing a lot of smile and joy and jumping jacks to a room and like you know he's an entertainer he's a performer i mean that's what he's really good at so why take that away from him just because well, well we're not we're, taking it away from him okay. he's entitled to that and he gets all the riches and spoils can, of that you can be an entertainer and be kind of unoriginal yeah those are not mutually right. exclusive categories you and, know and there's going to be guys like us that don't like it so fair enough but he makes his crowd happy right and that's kind of what we we're talking about earlier right, right. like the, the crowd loves it mm -hmm. you know that's to some extent, that's all that matters. Now, we're just not part of that crowd. Right. I would also say that, you know, that what, what's, what's that Nas phrase, right? No idea is original, right? And if you, the history of pop music is a history of repetition and of redundancies and of, of, of copying in, in, mm -hmm. in different ways. But yet we know, because we can listen to it, that pop music also evolves over time. So clearly there's some introduction of novelty that's happening with it. And I think, you know, partly what we like about music is the idea, whether it's true or not, and you could have a musicologist sit down and break down, no, actually it sounds exactly <laughs> like this other thing. Right. But as long as we feel like we're getting something different, right? Yeah. You know, this is what the German philosopher Adorno talks about as, as, as kind of pseudo-individualization, that part of the trick that pop, pop culture plays on us is it leads us to believe, and I kind of agree with him and I have disagree with him on Adorno on this, but it's this idea that what music does is, pop music gives us the idea that we are making choices about what we want to listen to and that we can choose the songs that are important to us even though those choices are always constrained by the market. So it's not like, mm -hmm. it's an inf it's not like we're actually getting real choice. It's like, here's the 10 songs that you can pick from, pick one that you really like, right? But that said, I think so long as we feel like, no one... None of us probably would like a song that we thought was just a copy of something else. If you mm -hmm. thought Uptown Funk sounded exactly like a Justin Timberlake song, you probably wouldn't like Ju Uptown Funk. Mm -hmm. On some level, you think that you're getting something that you haven't heard before right. that's enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And as long as you think that, and we all fall for that illusion, even if, again, on a technical level, someone could say, well, it's actually really similar to this other thing. Right. As long as we believe it's original, right. that that's what makes it original. Right. The perception is greater than the reality in that respect. Right. That's right. Um, you know, if I could just come, kind of come back to like things that I, I feel like I should be listening to more. I mean, I feel like I really should be listening to more dance music. Mm. I, I never got into house. I never got into techno because I identified as being a hip hop guy and being a hip hop guy. Mm. I mean, you weren't fucking with house and techno right. music. But I feel like I probably really cheated myself off of some really interesting musical experiences by not going more to like raves and to dances. You know, the fact that my kids are really into EDM and by my kids, I mean my students, you know, it makes me curious to see what is that experience like? What is that music like? Mm -hmm. Because I don't presume that I would dislike it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's 
I love music that's designed to make people dance. It's a big reason why I love Latin music. Mm-hmm. Latin music is highly dependent on a lot of repetition and using yeah. like the same kind of piano riffs that like everyone else uses or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, but the goal is how do you get people moving? And for that reason, if I have an appreciation for something like Latin boogaloo music, which I love, which is kind of a highly re- redundant derivative style, I should also be open to something like, you know, I, and I, I know EDM is a very poor term, but it's the right. one I understand. Yeah. Like I should be open to listening to that and, and understanding this is what people like about it. Even if I don't necessarily like mm-hmm. it, I should at least expose myself to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, one of these days, maybe when I take my daughter to, oh my God, to like EDC or something, <laughs> I'll, I'll learn about it. And then and be, I'm never going to this again. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But we'll see, we'll see. That's, cool. that's not gonna be right around the corner though. That's right. Well, on that note, we got to shut it down. All right. Thanks for being here, man. I no, appreciate it. It's a huge pleasure. It was really fun talking to both of you. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, that was Oliver Wang. Was it any good? I don't know. I can't tell. Leave us a comment on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net or on SoundCloud, Rebel underscore Radio. Or just call me at home and let me know what you thought of the show. If you didn't like it, just pretend you did and give us five stars on iTunes. It's all good. Nobody's going to know. <laughs>